The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald. You don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Yes, Donald Trump is falling behind in the polls. All the polls. But here's a number you don't hear enough. 41% of voters are still squarely in his camp. Four out of every 10 people. Who are these voters? You have an idea in your head, and so do I. An army of disillusioned white Americans for whom Trump is a truth teller, willing to pick fights with an elite, the out of touch. And we saw this week that Trump seems to be recommitting himself to that voter, even at the risk of alienating the rest of the country, by naming as his campaign chief a right-wing provocateur. The question is, Can that voter possibly get Trump elected? To understand that, we need to move beyond an idea and talk about flesh and blood people. So along comes Donald Trump talking the way that they talk and simultaneously speaking to their concerns over trade and over the economy. It's not super surprising that they've gravitated towards him. We'll get a sense of the history and culture of Trump's America from a man who grew up in the heart of it. He's written a book that many are calling the single best explanation of Trump's political rise. But we'll start with a look at the political power of these voters. With me for this episode is my colleague and deskmate, Nick Confessori. Hey, Nick. Hey, Michael. So this shakeup in the Trump campaign, Steve Bannon runs a website that is like the throbbing, angry heart of aggrieved white America. If you go on that website, you look at the comments, you look at the subjects of their coverage. That's who they channel. So it's pretty hard to see this as anything other than Donald Trump doubling down, for lack of a better word, on the exact same strategy and the exact same segment of the electorate that he has since he gave his speech about Mexicans and the dangers they pose to the United States back last June. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Absolutely. I mean, I think Breitbart was the media version of Trump before Trump from the first days that it started as a website. And in the recent years, it has become the closest thing to a mainstream version of an alt-right media organization. And the alt-right is this term that is contested, but it kind of loosely encompasses cultural conservatives, populists, and some people who call themselves white nationalists or race realists um, who think that culture is at the heart of, of, of America. Not ideas, culture and blood. And that is like a powerful thing. That's the place where those people live and go to see their views reflected. So it is hard to see this as anything but a signal of 
Trump going even further in the Trumpian direction we've come to recognize. And just to be clear on that alt-right notion, for people who aren't as familiar with it, it's not just about the traditional cultural issues like gay rights or abortion. In some ways, those are kind of off to the side, is my sense. that It's much more about a sense of, of kind of class and opposition to a set of elites who have kind of left a country in a certain really vulnerable state. Yeah, I think it, it fuses a couple of different ideas. You know, one is that European American culture is a distinct culture that white people should embrace as a culture, and that America is built on that culture, and that defending that culture should be part of the conservative political project, not just abstract ideas about liberty and constitutionalism. So that is an important piece of it. When you mix in that Breitbart is like an anti-establishment website, that part of its mission its websites are called Big Media, Big Hollywood, right? It's, it's, it's sub-websites. Their mission is to disrupt and anger and get in the face of people like us here at the New York Times. Right, but the, the whole problem with the Trump campaign so far, kind of demographically, when you look at polls, is that let Trump be Trump creates a dynamic where a certain kind of voter, typically white, working, and lower middle class, are his base, and his tactics have made it hard for him to get beyond that. So isn't what you're talking about a revolution in which he just keeps the same voters? Well, it sounds like it could be that, right? Look, there is a a version of the Trump message that is not so limited, that is maybe shorn of some of the anger, shorn of some of the outbursts and fight-picking with random people, that is just about change, that is just about him as a change agent for you. And often the you in that is the white working class voters who feel so angry at their own party, at their own elites. But it doesn't have to be. every party's elites, right. And it could be a little broader if it doesn't feel like an intra-party civil war and it doesn't feel like a cauldron of just white resentment if it is something more. Right. If it's an appeal to anyone who feels marginalized and left out of the political process. I mean, what I've been told uh, is that Steve Bannon is thinking about a message in which Donald Trump is cast as the Obama of 08 to Hillary Clinton, which is, I represent change, you desperately want change, she's not change. So if Trump succeeds in expanding the kind of voter who can see him in the White House, does the original core Trump voter suddenly look at him differently? Is there a risk that he basically alienates the one group who he has always kept loyal to him? I think it's the big question. Can those white working class voters, can they live alongside other voters in a coalition with a broader message? And what's interesting about that is that the reason they have flocked to him, the thing they like most about him, is the fact that he messes with all those other groups, that he gets in their face, that he alienates them, that he puts a fist down the throat of their smugness, that he goes against elites of all kind. That is the thing that they kind of revel in with Trump. And the question is, is there a broader version of the Trump politics or is the essence of the Trump politics really aimed at those core white working class voters? And to answer that question, we've got to go to Nate Cohn of The Upshot. He knows this stuff better than anyone. Nate, glad you're with us. Glad to be back. The question I have for you is about this Trump voter who responds so reliably to his message. How many of them are there out there? How big is this coalition? And is it really feasible that it would be transformed to something much bigger? Well, it looks like Donald Trump's coalition is pretty narrow. I mean, Donald Trump does better than past Republicans among white voters without a degree. That's his base, and that represents about 45% of the electorate. 
So that's a big chunk of voters to start with. His problem is that the remaining 55%, college-educated white voters and non-white voters, are pretty reluctant to embrace him. And he's doing worse than Mitt Romney among those kinds of voters. So if you could have a Republican candidate who kept Trump's strength among white working class voters and held down the losses among the rest of the electorate, that would potentially be a really potent electoral coalition. Whether such a candidate could do that is, I think, really hard to say. Right, Nate. I remember you know, a running joke um, when the Republicans were, were doing a better job of trying to do outreach to African-Americans, Hispanics, the joke was that like, you can't be both the party of white resentment and backlash and the party of multiculturalism at the same time. You kind of have to pick a lane. Past Republicans have tried to pick the lane and been in both lanes at the same time, right? Trump has just picked one lane. He does it very well. But talk a bit more about how hard it is to occupy both of those spaces in, in national politics today. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans of the past who tried to be in both spaces usually used cultural politics, right? George W. Bush thought that he could appeal to a lot of traditionally Democratic voters who are conservative on cultural issues and appeal to a lot of religiously conservative Black and Hispanic voters with a message on gay marriage or abortion. And, you know, that worked. George W. Bush really did do better among non-white voters than Republicans had done in prior elections or since then. And culture in this case, right, is is a Second Amendment. It's religion. It's abortion, right? Yeah, that's what's helped them. The catch, though, is that the, those those issues don't work as well as they used to because white college-educated voters in particular, but younger voters in general, um, are a lot less receptive um, to culturally conservative politics than they were a decade ago. So now the Republicans don't have an issue that lets them unify a, a coalition of conservative white voters and the more conservative non-white voters. Nate, let's sketch out the scenario in which this shakeup leads to a set of decisions and strategies that draw in a new voter. What does that look like? What's that path to victory for Donald Trump? I think it's fair to say that the whatever new strategy Donald Trump's advisors come up with is probably not one that's going to address their weakness with college-educated white voters or minorities. And so that means it will probably have to involve even greater gains among white working class voters than he's already shown in the polls. Now, I don't think that's impossible. You know, there have been moments in this race when the polls have been close, right? And at those moments, Trump has shown really big appeal among those voters. And I think that if you're looking for a, you know, a, a, an image of who that voter is, I think it's probably a voter in Scranton. And I know that's, that's <laughs> it's, you know, it's almost a joke at this point to talk about voters in Scranton, but, you know, it's a, it's a less educated community. It's a decaying industrial area where Democrats still win 63% of the vote in 2012. And, you know, why should Barack Obama win 63% of the vote in Scranton is sort of the way I would put it. You know, is it, it's not cultural politics. It's on uh, the Democratic Party's traditional attachment to economic issues. And Donald Trump has to figure out how to interrupt that. And if he can make big gains among the type of voters that lives there and win a place like Scranton, which you might think looks like a place that Trump should win, then he would at least be giving himself a fighting chance. Nate, you have outlined the great Dunder Mifflin question of the 2016 campaign, and for that, we thank you. No problem. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying 
and even deadly, is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. That's how we usually study the Trump voter, through polls and through brief, kind of unsatisfying interviews. J.D. Vance is offering us a banquet. He grew up poor in eastern Kentucky and Rust Belt, Ohio, centers of Trump's America. And he wrote a book about the experience called Hillbilly Elegy. It bears witness to this declining slice of the country. He joined me and Nick in the studio at the Times. J.D., thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So you write really movingly in your book about growing up in a place you feel a lot of pride for, but where almost everyone feels really cast aside and looked down upon. Why is it that Donald Trump, who is a wealthy real estate developer from Manhattan, why is it that he became the champion of these people you're writing about? So I think it's a couple of things that have happened. So one is that the style of Donald Trump, frankly, matches a lot of the people back home in a way that the style of modern elite politics doesn't. So you think of Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, they sound very filtered, they sound very polished, they sound like people who know what they're going to say and know why they're saying it. And a lot of times I think people who are unfamiliar with politics, who only talk about it around the kitchen table or with friends and family... They just don't talk and they don't really think like that. They're not super filtered. They're not super prepared. And so there's something about Trump's off-the-cuff manner that just appeals to people who relate to that way of talking about politics. The other side of it is, of course, these people feel ignored in a very substantive way. So the areas where Trump has the strongest support have actually struggled pretty mightily in the past 20 or 30 years. And for a long time, they, the, the party that they've called their home, which is the Republican Party, has offered a series of policies that don't necessarily address their core concerns. And whether you think that tax cuts and deregulation and free trade are good ideas, they're not addressing the sense of crisis that I think a lot of these people feel in their own lives and that they see in their own communities. So along comes Donald Trump talking the way that they talk and simultaneously speaking to their concerns over trade and over the economy, it's not super surprising that they've gravitated towards them. I want to step back and define this group of people we're talking about because sure. we keep talking about them as a group, but there's a geography and a kind of a population size I think that listeners would like to understand. So it's this, this book and what you're talking about is not really about just Appalachia. It's about a migration of ideas and values that started there. So first of all, why did this migration happen and where did it take this group of people and, and where are they now and how influential is what they brought? I write in the book that the, the Scots-Irish working poor were really concentrated in the South and Appalachia, so Tennessee, Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. 
And what happened after World War II is there was this massive migration. And there was actually an analogous migration from the Deep South, from, from the Black Poor. And what they did is they went north because that's where the opportunities were, right? So they went to Ohio. They went to Indiana, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New York. And I think because of that, these regions and the white working class across what I'll call greater Appalachia, which I broadly define from uh, New York down to northern Georgia and all the way across to Missouri, like that triangle is greater Appalachia. I think these people are pretty culturally homogenous. When I say these people, I mean my people, right? I think that they think very similarly about issues. They have broadly similar economic concerns. They're working the same types of blue-collar jobs. And so they also, I think, share a lot of the same frustrations and a lot of the same politics. So the flip side of that sense of strength and pride, right, is the learned helplessness that you write about in this book, which is fascinating, a, a feeling in places that are stricken by poverty and few opportunities that your life is out of your control, that your fate is out of your control. And so the other half of this is how does that sense of weakness, of crisis, of not being able to do anything, connect with what they see in candidates, especially Donald Trump? That feeling of learned helplessness, that feeling that you really don't have a whole lot of control over your decisions, I think breeds frustration at the people who do have control over your life. The perception, of course, is that those are the elites in Washington, D.C., and in in related ways, I think, the financial elites of Wall Street. So the sense is that both the people with financial and political power do have some control a lot of the things that you see in your community, you, you feel that it's it's their fault, even if you can't exactly pinpoint why. And of course, Donald Trump, the way that he goes after the elites with gusto, he goes after Wall Street in a way that's very unique for a Republican candidate, really appeals to those sensibilities. I need to ask you about this phrase because it, it, it's almost kind of a provocation, learned helplessness. I would love for you to talk a bit about your personal experience, your family, and how it is that you saw this concept play out in your in your own life because I have to say it's like a it's almost an offensive concept if you called them helpless they would probably punch you (laughs) I think they would definitely punch me though I think when I explain it in the way that I do I've been really surprised by people even you know relative strangers from back home who actually understand what I'm talking about and I think primarily what I'm talking about is a view that choices are disconnected from the outcomes of your life. So to give you an example, I got into Yale Law School. I was the first in my family to even go to a four-year college, so Yale was a pretty big deal. But one of the first responses I got from family was whether I pretended to be a liberal to get into Yale Law School. And there was this sense that, you know, again, these institutions that serve as the gateway to a lot of success in life are actually closed off to people who aren't like the elites, right? That the elites are these gatekeepers and that we're all kept out. And that's just, I think, one example. But what has happened is just generally a view that choices don't matter. If you work hard, you can't necessarily find a job because there aren't a whole lot of good jobs out there. Colleges are kind of excluded from you and so on down the line. I'm really curious in kind of a political sense, the people who are flocking to Trump right now, is it the people who are on disability and are directing their rage elsewhere? Or is it the people who are hanging on and working and putting in the time and resent their neighbors who are not doing that? I think it's probably both, actually, though, for different reasons. I think the people who are are generally, they have at least decent jobs. They're maybe working class or even middle class. Trump appeals to them because, one, they see their communities struggling around them, and they're a little bit worried that that's going to be their lives 10 or 20 years down the line. 
But he also is, you know, he definitely has some appeal to the, this idea that there are people who are taking advantage of the country in various ways. So he kind of splits this difference where he's simultaneously critical of some poor people, but also says to other poor people, you know, the economy is the fault of the elites. Your life's problems are the fault of the elites. And so I, I think there's probably a bit of a cognitive dissonance where everybody convinces themselves that they're on the right side of that line. And so Trump ultimately appeals to both the really poor, uh, but also the, the middle and working class people who are fundamentally doing okay, but are very worried about the future. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating paradox. It goes to the relationship people have with government. And that's really a just a fascinating undercurrent in your whole book. And I think that it sometimes gets kind of oversimplified in how we talk about it. We assume that people who get government benefits are happy with it. And your book raises this fascinating question that you can be a beneficiary of these policies and still resent them at the same time. Yeah. And I think that it, it's partially just because of the pride that comes with being a human being or maybe specifically with being a human in, in this particular area of the country. And when you juxtapose that pride against the fact that you're ultimately getting a relative handout from the government, I think you have to create a narrative that makes it all fit, right? So I'm getting benefits because I'm hardworking and I'm down on my luck and the elites are screwing me. Those other people are getting benefits because they're not hardworking. And you create that cognitive dissonance, I think, in some ways to rationalize the way that you feel about your own life. I want to ask you, when was the last time that your hillbilly kin, if you'd call them that? Absolutely. When was the last time they really felt listened to and empowered in American culture and politics? My theory of this situation is that September the 11th really delayed a reckoning about how strongly disconnected they were from their own country. So I think there were a lot of feelings of pride and patriotism after September the 11th. But that resentment that's always existed in some level was really brought out in the financial crisis because a lot of the trends that people had seen, you know, manufacturing was shedding some jobs, factories weren't doing super well really accelerated and hit everybody in the gut in a way that, that really brought to the foreground a lot of these resentments. In this book, the passage that both struck me and startled me the most was your description of this white working class America as the most pessimistic group in the country. More pessimistic, you wrote, than black America, than Latino America. Those are two groups of people who face, I think we'd all agree, strong, historic, systematic discrimination in one form or another that makes their job and their career and their life opportunities more difficult. How is it possible that the most pessimistic group in America is a group of white Americans? I think that's a really complicated question. And it's not just that they faced historical discrimination, but you just look at their average income levels right now, and they're still lower than the white working class. And yet black and Latino poor Americans are much more optimistic about the future. Part of it is probably a sense that elite or majority culture looks down on white Americans in a way that they maybe don't on black or Latino Americans. I don't know how true that sense is, but I definitely think that it's something that exists in the white working class. As my grandma once said, hillbillies are the only group of people that you're allowed to make fun of and not be called out by the media. And I think part of it is that the political leaders that the black and Hispanic poor have chosen are frankly just a little bit more optimistic about the future, right? If you go to the, the Democratic Convention, I think that expressed a view that's very common among the modern Democratic Party, which is like, this is a great country and everything's pretty good. Maybe some things we have to tinker with around the edges. Whereas in the Republican Party, there has been a little bit more of an apocalyptic tone about the direction the country is going. 
maybe that's purely because Obama is president and Republicans have to be critical and Democrats have to be cheery. But I actually think that there is something to be said for the nature of the economic dislocation that's happening in these primarily white communities. For most of American history, the idea of whiteness was just baked into the idea of Americanness. You didn't really have to have identity as a white person because you were an American person, and that was kind of the default setting. And I'm curious about what you said earlier, their sense of being passed over. What's obviously happening in this country now is that in 20 years, being American is not going to be synonymous with whiteness. It's going to be synonymous with black and brown Americans, people of all races, people from different countries. And I wonder if that demographic shift, which is happening mostly in places outside Appalachia, is something that people in Appalachia in your hometown feel, understand, and see coming in any way. Do they have any connection to that trend, and is that part of what powers their feeling of loss? I don't think that that's a huge driver of the feeling of loss, in part because I don't think that many of them consider whiteness as an identity or Americanness as an identity as something that is is much attached to the color of their skin. And I say that only because they mistrust so much of the upper crust white elite. They almost can't define themselves as white because other people who look like them, they really, really dislike. I think that there's an interesting argument about the implicit ways that Americanness and whiteness have come together and whether they're being confronted with it explicitly in the first instance. My guess is that there's probably some of that, and that explains some of Trump's appeal, some of uh, the racial resentment that you see in these communities. But my real view here is that most of these people do not feel racial resentment in an explicit or even an implicit way. And that the biggest problem with the past you know, few years of American politics is that the, the very legitimate anxieties that they feel are in some ways being uh, twisted by their political leadership into a new racial resentment. I really do think that Trump is leading people to a place that they haven't been. I don't so much see Trump as the expression of something that was already there. And I really worry that the takeaway from the Trump phenomenon is going to be look, these people are all angry or racist or nativist or xenophobes, and we shouldn't even try to talk to them because I think if that happens, the problem that we're seeing in 2016 is just going to be much worse. I can't let you leave without asking you about your Uncle Pat. (laughs) Uh, This was a gentleman you wrote about in your book who at one point took a chainsaw and drew it across another man's body, and that, that man inexplicably didn't call the police, which says something really interesting about the kind of the honor code of this Right. People, too. So I want to talk a little bit about that honor code. And then I just want to talk a lot more about Uncle Pat. Okay. (laughs) So I I think the the honor code is something that is, to me, very real. We were taught in some ways as soon as we were born that the only thing that really mattered was family and that the worst thing in the world was to betray your family or to allow someone to insult your family. Uncle Pet as I talk about in the book, was a pretty successful business owner and someone delivered, I think, some timber to his business. And the person who did the delivery said, offload this now, you son of a bitch. And Pet said, you know, when you call me a son of a bitch, you're insulting my dear old mother. And I'd kindly ask you to retract that statement. And the guy said, well, offload this now, you son of a bitch. And Pet, according to family history, and I've heard it from every person who knew him, beat this guy pulled him out of the truck, 
and then ran a saw up and down his body to the point where the guy nearly bled to death. But the, the guy, for whatever reason, decided that he had wronged Pet by insulting his mother and refused to talk to the police about the entire incident. But what's really fascinating about it is that my family has made sure that I learned the lessons of it, which is that you don't let a man insult your mother. And when you think about Trump's kind of hyper-masculine rhetoric, the way that he talks about winning again and talks about going after the Chinese and going after whoever else, I think that there's an element of that loyalty and that honor that he's really tapping into, which is that people feel not just economically dispossessed, but like other people look down on them and like they're losing in some important way. And his whole appeal is in part, let's go after the people who are losing and we're going to beat them and we're going to win again. I've been talking with some colleagues of mine this idea of whether you know, a different kind of candidate could lead and shape some of those same worries and angers in like a more productive direction. I think you think maybe he could. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. And I, I, I think that you see that honestly in the comparison between George W. Bush after 9-11 and Donald Trump. George W. Bush is someone people really trusted. I think they eventually lost a lot of that trust. But in 2002, he was almost a saint in the white working class. And he used his position not to incite fear of Muslims, but to say, look, we're all in this together, including the very good Muslim citizens who make up the bulk of the Muslim population in the United States. You compare that to Trump, right? And it's almost exactly the opposite. And it's not surprising that Trump's supporters are starting, you know, whether the things they're shouting at rallies or just the polls and and the way that it's it's reflected in in, in public opinion, that I I really believe that this guy is like a danger to my people because I think that he's both distracting them from very real problems and projecting their fears onto very unreal problems. Right, but George W. Bush was the epitome of American elitism, like Texas oil— Except, except. Off to Yale. Except he was born again. Gentleman sees. In fact, in his own biography as a campaigner, he was a rejection of his father's wasp elitism. It's how he positioned right. himself, right? Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting about George W. Bush is that he explicitly designed his political career around a rejection of wasp elitism. And whether it was legitimate or whether it was just like this genius thought of Karl Rove, right? I mean, that Karl Rove <laughs> really constructed the political biography. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I do think George George W. Bush is a, is, is a genuine Texan Christian. Right. But I, I think that definitely if that hadn't been part of his political biography, you know, if Bill Clinton didn't talk the way that he did and played up his Yale Law School education, I think that people would feel about him the way they feel about Hillary Clinton. Right. And so therefore, Jeb's real mistake was going to Florida and not Texas. Well, I'm I, joking, but I mean, right. but there's something to this idea that like Jeb wanted Jeb Bush, who lost monumentally against right. Donald Trump and was the pedantic bothered, finger-wagging oh, elite. Kind of pointy head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean he... my, my theory, actually, of the entire race, and i sorry, but but this is just such an oh, interesting No, we want to hear, yeah. hear this. But m- my theory of the entire race is that Donald Trump wouldn't exist if it were not for Jeb Bush. This rich son of an elitist who acts like an elitist, who is so foreign in so many ways, who made his home in a cosmopolitan city, et cetera, et cetera, that if he hadn't been on that stage finger-wagging, talking about how the wars that his brother started that had sent a lot of their kids off to die and the strategic blunder was a good idea. And by the way, a lot of the things you think and feel are wrong. And, right. and he, gonna... he seemed to reinforce the disconnect with every breath he took. 
And then Trump Absolutely. comes along on that debate stage in South Carolina and says, to paraphrase, that war was stupid. George Bush is an idiot. The whole thing was a waste. I can't believe we did that. And he gets yeah. cheered. And yeah, he cheered. He, he he gets cheered. And I remember the talking heads after that debate where they said George W. Bush is so popular in South Carolina. I think Donald Trump just cost himself the election. And I actually had written an article in USA Today that came out right around the same time. But when he, that happened, I was like, Donald Trump just won the nomination. Where were you in this newsroom when we needed you? Which was, pro- <laughs> was probably like, probably G- like I, mean, I don't want to, I don't want to screw this up, but probably late 2015, December. We were truly trying to make sense of this, and I think if we're being honest with ourselves, underestimating his power. Absolutely, I don't think anyone in the media, with a few exceptions, we didn't grasp what his connection was to these voters and why it worked. And we were a little too focused on the superstructure of Donald Trump. Right. And all the while, there he was kind of cannily, smartly making a connection to these voters that more credentialed and traditional GOP candidates who seemed to fit our conception of what would work in a primary were doing a terrible job. Thank you so much, J.D. Yeah, thank you, guys. We'll end as we often do here with a number from the upshot. So, Nate, what is our number this week? The number is 34. 34 what? That is 34% of President Obama's supporters in 2012 who were whites without a college degree. So one in three people who voted for Obama were white voters without a degree, the type of people that Donald Trump hopes to attract. And he's doing better than that, right, with that group, Trump? In the polls where he's even in the, in the ball game, he is. Nate, thank you for that. appreciate it. No problem. That's it for this episode of The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Thanks to my friend, Nick Confessori. He introduced me to JD's book. And I want to thank him for writing Shotgun on this episode. We'll be back here on Tuesday with another episode of The Run-Up. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to us, just like you would a photo on Instagram, except it's stars, not hearts. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And listeners of a show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support the show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.